In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the risks involved with having faith in others. So how's everyone doing? We certainly hope you're well and not feeling too bored these days. If you do happen to be looking for something to do, we have an idea that could help fill, well, at least one minute of your day. I don't often mention this, but it can really help the podcast if you rate and review us on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts. Five stars and some kind words are always appreciated. And if you aren't already following us on social media, we're at No Sleep Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So there you go. One minute of your time and you'll do a good deed and spread some love. And speaking of love... We'd love for you to listen to this week's stories. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join a Russian soldier in World War II. He's serving out his punishment for going AWOL by serving in a battalion designed for such things. We meet him on an ice road, marching onwards to his destination. But in this tale, shared with us by author Paul R. Hardy, we're reminded that sometimes paths can end before they're supposed to. I join Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So when your route is blocked by holes in the ground, it's going to take some unusual, morbid planning to continue on your journey. At least when you're walking along... The Road of Ice and Men. There was a man's face beneath the ice. His skin was pale and his mouth opened wide in a frozen gasp as his dead eyes stared up past the ragged fur of my boot. I blinked the frost from my lashes and looked again. I was not mistaken. There was a man beneath me, sealed in the ice. I moved my foot and saw the uniform collar at his throat. He wore the field gray tunic of a Nazi soldier. Nor was he alone. There was another German next to him, and below him, and more all around, laid side by side in rows that were piled one upon another. The road I stood on was built from stacked corpses under shallow ice. 
I looked up and shook my head to rid myself of the frigid days in which I'd been shuffling down the ice road. I'd come to a halt almost without realizing it, and so had the rest of the column of ragged men in snow-rimmed coats. We were marching to the front to fight as part of a Strafbat, a punishment battalion, and the road of ice beneath our feet was the only passage through a landscape torn to shreds by shellfire. The jagged earth was frozen hard as stone, too difficult to shape into a normal road with pick and shovel. Instead, a narrow highway had been built by filling a series of interlinked shell holes with the only available resource, the bodies of dead prisoners, topped off with a little water to freeze and make a flat surface. But the road ahead was smashed to pieces. A fresh artillery strike had ripped a new shell hole down through layers of frozen corpses, smashing them into pieces and scattering frozen chunks of pale meat and dark organs across the snow and ice. An officer pushed past me with guards trailing behind. He wore the blue shoulder boards of an NKVD man and a coat unmarred by snow. He surveyed the damage, then turned back to the column and pointed at the men ahead of me. The first twenty. Find all the pieces and fill it back up. The Stravniki ahead of me stumbled forward to seek out the shards of corpses and heft them back into their place. But they soon found it difficult. The chunks of flesh had briefly thawed in the explosion and re-frozen afterwards. A weary Stravnik struggled to move half ahead, whose brains had frozen solid and sealed it tight against the ice. The sound of an engine prompted me to lurch to one side in time for a truck to rumble past the column to the shell hole. It was one of the American vehicles donated to the Soviet Union to help with the war, a Studebaker converted to carry water tanks on its back. The driver stopped the truck, leaving the engine grumbling to keep the water in the tanks from freezing. He jumped out to speak to the NKVD officer. Is this all we have? The NKVD man looked disapprovingly at the tanker. The driver nodded, fearful. The officer took a deep breath of frigid air. Well, we shall have to make do. He turned to the Strathnikai, gathering up the shattered corpse pieces. You men, you're too slow. Take your clothes off. They stood and looked among themselves. Yes, off with the coats and those hats and boots. They stared dumbly back at him. The officer turned to the guards. Give them some assistance. The guards came forward to drag the padded jackets from off their shoulders. The uniform was their only valuable possession. They had no weapons to confiscate. Stravniki were not issued rifles unless they were about to attack the enemy. Lie down. Yes, in the shell hole. The guards shoved them down to the ice with the butts of their rifles, forcing them to lie among the frozen shards of hearts and bones and faces. I was next in line. I couldn't help shuffling back, but it was hopeless. The NKVD man pointed at me. You! Yes, you! So this was how my crime would be redeemed. Not one step back. Comrade Stalin had said as the Nazis swept towards Moscow. Whole armies were thrown in their path and ordered neither to retreat nor surrender. I marched to the front with them and was given the order to kill and to die. 
and I would have died for the Soviet Union. Gladly. I was no coward. But when I came face to face with the enemy, I could not kill. I looked into the eyes of a wounded man pleading for another second of life and saw the same desperate look I'd seen in the eyes of a pig when my father put a blade in my hand and told me to cut its throat. He called me a coward when I hesitated, then took the blade and did it himself. Not one step back, I took a thousand before the NKVD caught me. They beat me. They forced me to sign a confession. I expected a firing squad. Instead, they sent me to a Stravbot to redeem myself in blood. They did not care whose. I unbuttoned my padded coat and pulled it from my shoulders. The chill wind stung my exposed skin like a barrage of needles. No, you idiot! Keep the coat on! I did not understand, but I put my coat back on. Step forward. I stepped forward. He looked to a guard. Give him the hose. The guard rolled out a long hose from the back of the water truck and handed me the heavy nozzle, made of frigid brass, save for a wrapping of rope around its neck so it could be held by naked skin. Its handle was still metallic, but there was a mitten dangling from it so it could be used without the risk of frostbite. Now, operate the hose. I looked at him in horror, my mouth flapping to find the words for an objection as the guard went back to the truck and started up the pump. Water slithered down the hose until it reached the nozzle and stopped, held back by the valve. Well, what are you waiting for? I looked down at the men lying among the bloody rubble in the shell hole. Their shivering skin was already pale like chicken flesh, save for where it was scraped and cut by shards of frozen meat and bone. I looked back at the NKVD man, pleading with my eyes. Operate the hose, or lie down with them. I pointed the nozzle toward the men, wormed my hand into the mitten and grasped the handle, a short lever terminating in a metal ball, exactly like the bolt of a rifle. One of the condemned men looked at me with pleading eyes, mouthing a few words through rime-frosted lips. Please, comrade. Please. Operate the hose, coward. I squeezed my eyes shut and turned the lever. It opened with a crack, breaking ice that must have been inside. Water gushed from the nozzle. I opened my eyes again and saw the men shuddering as the water rose over their limbs. One of them tried to struggle up out of icy water that racked his body with shivers, but the NKVD man pointed him out, and a guard shot him in the head. Some of the Stravniki near me flinched at the bullet, but I did not. I simply watched. The rest of the men in the hole shuddered as the water covered their faces. One or two gasped and thrashed at the final moment, but they soon gave up and sank back into the frigid pool. Frost formed quickly at the edge of the crater. It would not take more than an hour to freeze solid. Soon I was ordered to march across to test the strength of the ice. I looked down. The dead men stared back at me with wide, empty eyes. I knew then that the world was full of such men, whose lives could be spent like kopecks in a cigarette machine. The NKVD officer looked to one of the guards. 
Perhaps we will make soldiers of these Stravniki yet. <laughs> the guards laughed along with him. Get moving. The war lies before you. I looked up from the eyes of the dead men beneath my feet and marched on towards the front. Sometimes when the pickings in your chosen profession are slim, you have to take an unexpected, if not fully legal, career change. At least that's the case for the locksmith, who's seeking work after deciding to moonlight as a safecracker. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeff Miller, when a job presents itself, the conditions are somewhat unusual, even for a criminal enterprise. I join Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Mick Wingert, and Aaron Lillis in performing this tale. So remember, sometimes it's better to ask questions even in a no-questions-asked profession, because otherwise you might find yourself working the black bag job. It was midsummer, and I hadn't had a job in a little over a month. So, a couple of weeks before, I had quietly started getting the word out that I was available to work again. I'm not a heavy. I don't carry a gun, and I don't rough people up. I'm a safe cracker. I used to be an honest locksmith years ago, but that's a 50-hour-a-week drudge. Nowadays, I put in eight or nine hours on a job, and the rest of the month is mine. I was enjoying a pint with a few of the boys at an Irish pub downtown when Ben, the bartender, gave me a look as he poured my second pint. I knew what he meant. I excused myself to go to the bathroom and saw that Ben had beaten me to the back alley. How badly do you want to work? I could use a job. What's the problem? There's a guy I know. Friend of a friend. I can't vouch for him personally, and to be honest, he's weird. But my friend says he's solid. Always pays well. Jobs go off without a hitch. Weird how? Ben looked away from me and pursed his lips. He shook his head. I don't know. He just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Really? The heebie-jeebies? <sighs> hey, fuck you. See for yourself. He's looking for a good safecracker, and he's sitting in the corner alone. Orange hoodie. Can't miss him. If it goes bad, don't blame me. I warned you. He opened the door to the bar. And I better get my finder's fee. Ben shut the door. Hard. Just as Ben said, he was hard to miss. Bright orange hoodie, dirty jeans, and a Tampa Bay Buccaneers baseball cap. He was chubby and wore an ugly class ring with a false ruby on his left hand. I sat down. You're the guy, huh? Ben said you need a locksmith. I do. You said you're skilled. 
You keep your mouth shut, and you follow directions. Is that right? I was beginning to understand what Ben meant. I couldn't tell you why I felt the way I did, but the more he spoke, the more I felt my skin crawl. That's right. What have you got in mind? Let's take a walk. I did not want to be alone with this guy, but I also knew that I was going to run out of money in about a week, and I didn't have any other prospects. So I stood up and left the bar with him, shooting a look at my buddies to come look for me if I wasn't back soon. We walked down a nearly deserted side street, and he gave me the details. It was... crazy. The joint he had in mind was a jewelry store downtown. I knew it. Nothing too pricey, but they didn't sell zircons either. He wanted me to put a black bag over my head and walk inside during business hours. A black bag with no eye holes. He said that once I was inside, he'd tell me the rest. This is your plan? You and Ben can go fuck yourselves. I'm a professional and I don't put up with practical jokes. He gave me a shit-eating grin while he reached into the pocket of his hoodie. For a second, I thought he was going to knife me, so I jerked backwards. But it was just a lighter. Then, he was gone. Vanished. A light tap on my shoulder nearly made me cry out. It was him. Behind me. You need me to show you anything else? <laughs> I'm not sure you'd like it. But I can be more impressive if you still need convincing. I was too rattled to do anything but shake my head. Tomorrow at noon, then. The park across the street from the store? Y yes Good. I'll bring the bag. You bring your tools. You'll like the split. And he named a figure so large it just about made me choke. He continued down the street while I doubled back for another round of beers. I gave Ben a wad of cash for his troubles. What the fuck did you get me into, Ben? He just shrugged and went back to polishing pint glasses. The next morning I examined and cleaned my tools, though they didn't really need cleaning, and triple-checked that I had everything I'd need. Satisfied, I put on my lucky shirt a genuine Sandy Koufax jersey from his 1965 season. Years ago, we hit some rich douchebag who was into sports memorabilia, and I took it as a part of my share. It hasn't failed me yet. I put a jacket on over the jersey, grabbed my tools, and left to go meet Mr. Blackbag. He was sitting on a bench in a small park caddy corner from the jewelry store, wearing the same clothes as the day before. I sat down next to him and opened a newspaper I'd bought on the way over. For a few minutes, we said nothing. Then, he placed a large black bag and an old-fashioned key beside him. Without looking at me, he began to speak. I'm going to get up and go into the store. When I enter, count to twenty, walk briskly to the entrance and pull the bag over your head. Bring the key. I'll direct you verbally to the safe when you're inside. With that, he got up and crossed the street, as casually as a man going out for coffee in a bun. I didn't see him put on a mask before he entered, which worried me, 
as I knew there were guards and cameras inside. A couple of years ago, I cased the place myself, and security was tight. Without someone on the inside, we didn't see how it could work, so we abandoned the idea. I started counting. Every bone in my body wanted to ditch this job, but Ben had vouched for this creep, mostly, and he'd never steered me wrong before. Besides, if I left, my reputation would be trashed. It wasn't out of the question. I'd get two behind the ear. And with this head case, maybe worse than that. In any case, I didn't hear any alarms or commotion, and it was too late to pull out now. I reached 20, took a deep breath, and crossed the street. I glanced furtively to my left and right. It didn't seem that anyone was paying attention to me, so I pulled the bag over my head. It was made of rough cotton and smelled like old socks. Blindly, I slipped inside. The store was deathly silent. I could feel the presence of other people, but... They didn't seem to be moving, and certainly weren't making any noise. I'm not even sure they were breathing, but that might be because my own breath was so loud inside the bag. It was hot, but I nevertheless felt goose flesh rising on my arms and neck. Four steps forward, turn to your right 90 degrees, and straight ahead for 12 more paces. That will bring you to the counter. Take your time. There is no hurry. I tried not to piss myself and cautiously did what he said. I hated walking blind, but his directions were good. I could feel the gate that led behind the counter. Open it. Three paces forward and you'll be at the door to the back office. It will be empty. Close the door behind you and remove the bag. You'll see the safe. Make sure the key is touching your skin the entire time while you open it. As I opened the gate and walked to the door, he continued to give instructions. Take only the purple sack and close the safe back up. Do not open the sack. Make sure you do not open the door or even look through the window to the showroom without the bag covering your head again. As soon as I closed the office door behind me, I took that god-awful bag off my head and took a deep breath of clean air. The office was small and sparsely furnished. A wooden desk with a landline phone, a floor lamp that was turned on, and a bookshelf packed with gemology references decades out of date. Plus, a safe. A large top-of-the-line safe. I couldn't crack a safe with one hand, so I shoved the key into my sock. Crazy, I know. But with this guy, I wasn't going to take any chances. Not yet, anyway. He'd said it had to be touching my skin. Someone had doodled all around the dial with a permanent marker, which was strange, but it was easier to open than I'd expected. It took just ten minutes. The safe didn't make a sound as I opened it. For a moment, I couldn't do anything but stare. I'd expected to see jewelry, cash, loose stones, maybe even drugs or a few guns. But there wasn't any of that. The safe was full of junk. I didn't look through it all, but 
What I saw made me uneasy. Monopoly pieces carved out of bone. Sapia prints of children with their mouths open wide. What looked like an Elvis Presley death mask. Stack of quarters with Washington's eyes scratched out. You get the idea. The worst, though? The worst was a pile of crayon drawings of the 9-11 attacks. Even though they were clearly done by small children, they felt more vivid and horrible than actual photos from the scene. After a couple of minutes searching, I found it. A purple crown royal sack with the cords cinched shut. I closed the safe and glanced towards the door. It was on the right-hand wall, so I couldn't see into the showroom but a sickly glow shone in through the window in the door. It made me feel lightheaded. Maybe it was the light that made me do it, or maybe I just wanted to see how far this freak show went. Either way, I know what gemstones feel like, and this sack wasn't filled with jewels. Fuck it. I sat down at the desk to open the sack. I can still hardly believe what was inside. The sack was full of colorless glass marbles, and each one contained the roughly sawed-off head of an action figure. G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, Star Wars, and a bunch of others I didn't recognize. I couldn't imagine he was going to all this trouble for flea market garbage, so I looked a little closer, figuring this had to be some kind of scheme for smuggling. Maybe the marbles melted down into drugs? Or were some kind of explosive? Some kind of spy shit, maybe? That's when I started and almost tipped over the desk chair. Every single one of those sawed-off doll heads was facing up. I'd swear I'd seen those heads turn to stare directly at me. I closed the sack, went to the door, and pulled the black bag over my head, my heart pounding. When I entered the showroom, the guy asked if I'd gotten it, and I nodded. He directed me to the front door and told me to remove the black bag without turning around. He'd meet me in the park shortly. Five minutes after I sat down on the bench, he joined me. You got it? I handed him the crown royal sack, the black bag, and the key. You didn't open it, did you? Of course not. When do I get my end? Right now. He handed me a manila envelope stuffed with enough cash to last me at least six months. I couldn't believe he'd do this out in public, but no one paid us any mind. I stashed it in my tool bag. You did well. If I need you again, I'll let Ben know. And with that, he stood up and walked away. It was nearly 12.30pm and I needed a beer and a burger. Several beers, actually. On my way out of the park, I glanced back at the jewelry store. Customers were going in and out of the front door as if nothing had happened. I sat down at my favorite bar and grill and tried to catch the bartender's attention, but she was with another customer. I dug in my pocket to find my phone while I waited. But instead of pulling out my phone, I pulled out one of those marbles. 
Embedded in its center was the head of some weird Japanese manga character. It looked vaguely bug-like, with huge eyes and a little grin on its face. I couldn't tell you if it was a boy or a girl. Now, I knew I had left every one of those marbles in the sack. I never even picked one up. I stepped outside, dropped it down a sewer gate, and took my seat again, wiping the cold sweat off my forehead. The bartender was standing directly in front of me. You look nervous, honey. Something wrong? Just hungry. Probably coming down with something. Uh, give me a burger and whatever's good on tap. She didn't move. What are you looking at? I said a burger and a beer. She smiled. What's your name again? Jane, I've been in here twice a week for years. What kind of game are you playing? Just feeling flirty. I ate the burger and drank the beer, but everything had felt so wrong that day, including Jane. I decided to skip a second beer and go home. I had beer in my fridge. When Jane brought the tab, I laid down a 20, and she glared at me. Not paying with a card? Jane, what the fuck? I always pay cash. What do you care? Her face turned mean, and she grabbed my wrist with a strength I didn't expect. Why did you steal from me? She was so close to my face, I could feel the spittle hitting my cheeks. You do not want me to visit you in person. Give me your name! I broke away and ran out into the street, knocking down an old man with a cane. I apologized profusely and helped steady him with my arm, but as I brought him to his feet, he grabbed my neck, choking me. Who hired you? I will chew the flesh off your bones if you don't tell me. I know someone with power was there. I need the old man in the groin, and he doubled over in pain. People on the sidewalk gasped. One young guy tried to be a hero chasing after me, but I've been chased before and lost him after a couple of blocks. Thankfully, I didn't run into any cops. I chalked that up to my lucky jersey. I had a nasty bruise on my neck and didn't want to see anyone else at this point, so I took back alleys and crossed a vacant lot to my building. When I reached my floor, my mobile started ringing. I stepped inside my apartment and answered. It was Ben. That guy called. He sounds pissed off. The fuck did you do? I did the job. He paid me. It's done. Well, he's shitting a brick. Said you'd better call him or he'd take it out on me. Call him. Now. Ben gave me a number and hung up before I could say anything more. What could I do? I called him. You looked, you idiot. You opened the bag. There's only 39 marbles and there's supposed to be 40. Do you have any idea what you've done? Marbles? What are you talking about? I didn't look. It was none of my business. You're a terrible liar. Look, we can work this out. Tell me where you live and what it looks like. What do you mean, what it- The face. Tell me what the face in the marble looks like. Give me your address, and I can take care of it. Are you crazy? A face? What the hell did you have me steal? 
He went quiet for a moment. When he spoke again, it was in a different tone. Friendly, almost. (sighs) Okay. Fine. Maybe there were just 39 in the sack. Tell me, what else was in the safe? I was a little shaken by the sudden change of tone, but I started to tell him anyway. The Monopoly pieces, the masks, the photos, the drawings. And then I shut up, because I suddenly knew what he was up to. That weirdo was tracing my location. I opened the back of my phone and removed the battery, thinking what a chore it would be to get a new number. Come on, my little locksmith. Did you think you'd get rid of me that easily? (laughs) It'll be simpler for you if you just tell me where you live. The battery was in my right hand, and the phone was in my left, but he was still talking to me through the device. Without hesitation, I opened the window and dropped both of them four stories to the concrete. I didn't wait to see them smash before I started packing a bag. As I packed, I noticed a bulge in the outer pocket of my suitcase. Thinking I might have forgotten some toiletries from my last trip, I unzipped it up and reached inside. It wasn't soap or a mini bottle of shampoo. It was the marble. Again. As I held it, those huge manga eyes turned slowly in their non-existent sockets to stare at me. The face was no longer smiling. I got a mallet and pounded the marble on a cutting board until it shattered. I flushed the glass down the toilet and melted the plastic head in a cast iron pan. It smelled horrible. As I jogged to my car, I tossed the pan in a sidewalk garbage can. Ten hours later, I was in a room at a Motel 6 in the middle of nowhere, playing solitaire on a wobbly desk in the corner. The TV was on, but I wasn't watching. I just wanted the white noise. I heard something clank and looked up. The door latch had flipped open, and the knob was turning. I stood up and grabbed the desk lamp. Not much of a weapon, but it'd have to do. He walked inside, still wearing that hideous orange hoodie, and closed the door as if the room belonged to him. The television made a popping sound and went black. The overhead light faded to nothing. I felt my stomach drop and murdered curses under my breath. I'm sorry to do this. Really, I am. But that marble was one of the really bad ones. You opened yourself up to her by opening that bag. And she can get to me through you. It won't hurt, though. I promise you that. You won't feel a thing. As he spoke, he removed things from his pockets. In his right fist, he held a lighter. In the other, a gnarled human hand with wicks coming out of each of the fingers and the thumb. They were melted halfway down. I don't know how I knew, but I was certain this wasn't a replica. It was real, or at least it had been, once. 
As he lit it, a pale light painted the room the color of bile, growing stronger as each wick caught fire. Once his grisly candelabra was fully illuminated, he put the lighter away and, with a look of disgust on his face, drew a large knife. I stood, frozen. He walked towards me, but stopped abruptly a couple of feet from where I stood, grimacing. He tried to walk forward again, but was stopped a second time, as if he'd run into a wall of glass. I think it was then he realized that the sickly light from his candle didn't quite fill the room. It stopped at the edge of a circle made of sand. You see, about nine hours earlier, I'd stopped at a McDonald's off the highway for some coffee and decided to look through my old road atlas while I waited in line at the drive-thru. But instead of grabbing the atlas from the glove box, I brought back the same marble for the third time. The manga head looked like it was snarling at me, and I could see fangs in its mouth. I wanted to cry. But after a minute of pounding on the steering wheel while screaming, I regained my composure and accepted that running was pointless. One of these two freaks would find me eventually. When the garbled voice from the drive through speaker gave me one last chance to tell her who had hired me, the choice was simple. She wanted him, and he almost certainly wanted me dead. I came clean and made a deal with her. She told me the words I needed, and I stopped at a Kmart to buy the materials. A 25-pound bag of play sand was all they had, but the Elmo doll on the end cap told me it would work just fine. Continuing the circle under the bed and the other furniture was a pain in the ass, and I was terrified that he would break it when he entered the room. But he didn't. He begged me to free him as I shimmied around the edge of the motel room, careful to stay outside of the circle. As I climbed over the bed with my back against the wall, he pleaded with me not to leave him there for her, but I ignored him. I knew that even if he screamed, she'd make sure no one did anything before she arrived, and she'd said she'd clean up when she was finished. Nothing would be traced back to me. Besides, I was 100% certain he'd still kill me if I let him go. The next morning, I received a box via courier, no return address. Inside was a bright orange hoodie that looked as if it had been half devoured by moth larva. It was covered in rusty stains. I put on a pair of gloves and dropped the hoodie in the trash. I'd burn it later. Underneath were two more objects. The first was a waxy severed hand with unburnt wicks sticking out of each digit. An ugly class ring burrowed deep into one of the fingers. I guess she couldn't get it off. The other was a handwritten note on flowered stationery. It smelled faintly of lilac. I'll be in touch. We have so much work to do.
For centuries, there have been debates about the intersection of science and faith. It's a controversial subject, and one that's likely to spawn discussion until the end of time. Some see the two as being at odds with one another. Others believe they go hand in hand. In this tale, shared with us by author C.M. Scandrath, we're introduced to a group of scientists who could be seen as directly challenging the nature of creation. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas and Erica Sanderson. So beware of men playing God, because there's always a danger they'll birth humanity's downfall, at least in the womb of New Eden. Imagine for a moment that much of the Bible is true. Some of you will need to apply more suspension of disbelief than others. But for you Westerners, at least, it shouldn't be too difficult. After all, we live in a world saturated by Christianity, from the holidays we celebrate right down to the words of our nation's anthems. Of course, I don't mean the details of all those Bible stories are true, just most of the broad, overarching concepts. There was a Tower of Babel of sorts. Eden existed. Human beings used to live 10 times as long as they do now. That sort of thing. And God is omnipresent, in a way. We know that because we tested for the existence of Him with science. We created many different environments and scenarios, observing and recording everything we could, no matter how irrelevant the data points seemed. Exactly how we did this isn't important. The key is what we did with that information. Because it follows that once you know how to detect the presence of God, then you can probably divine a way to block the sight of God and render yourself invisible to His gaze. And that's precisely what we did. We knew our money came from a religious organization, presumably some sort of megachurch operation that sucked money out of the devout and funneled it straight to us. Whoever was running it all certainly knew what they were doing, because our labs and offices were easily the nicest I'd ever worked in. But you're not really interested in all that. You want to know about the thing we built, the thing that could block what I christened God Particles. It was ugly on the outside, this edifice. Inside its huge hangar, it was a sprawling mess of coolant pipes, humming fans, and ceramic, hexagonal tiles the size of trampolines. It formed a dome in the center of the vaulted space, encircled by backup generators and the console desks that monitored the functions of the structure. The ceramic hexagons had been one of my major contributions to the project, my own invention. They looked dull, each one thick Palestinian clay on the outer surface. But the inside was banded with pure iron, then bronze, silver, and finally, a layer of nanometer gold. I could tell you where I got the idea, but if you know your Bible well enough, you'll already have figured it out. There was only one entrance to the dome, a hexagonal doorway in the west wall that contained a kind of airlock setup, where people needed to wait for just over 11 minutes before they were allowed to enter the godless interior. The consequence, if you didn't? I can only describe it as a sort of spiritual decompression where if you leaped directly from one environment to the other, 
the sudden lack of, or return of, G-particles would send you into a kind of spiritual shock, not unlike decompression sickness. And inside the dome itself? Well, that's where my story truly begins. At first, the space was a curiosity, a huge, empty dome with an inner shell made of pure gold. The project director hadn't liked the gold and asked for it to be painted white, which made the place eerily directionless and infinite. The floor lighting bounced off the stark whiteness and homogenized everything. An area of space free from God didn't actually seem very useful at the start. We considered hiring it out to politicians so that they could make plans free from the sight of God, but nobody was interested. It seems politicians have never cared over much about morality. We experimented with growing plants without the presence of G particles, which didn't change their physiology or development in the slightest. Some of us worked in there, hoping that being free from God might inspire us to wild scientific breakthroughs, but no such thing happened. The only effect we could discern, other than the spiritual decompression, was that people who spent more than three continuous days inside were prone to headaches when they came out of the dome. Everyone was racking their brains for potential applications, but it took the only woman on the team to realize how the dome could be utilized. That woman was me. I was 28 then, my body in perfect working order. Like the others, I spent my scheduled time inside the dome, experimenting, trying to find a real use for the unique environment I'd helped create. But I possessed one piece of human physiology my colleagues did not, a womb. For our comfort, bathrooms, showers, and a kitchen had been set up inside the dome, and it was by sheer coincidence that I realized it. When I was in there, menstruation stopped completely. In fact, it stopped the very moment I set foot inside. I had found the point of difference that would lead to our breakthrough. Humans were the only animal that experienced the effect I discovered. No other animal has our unique cycle of endometrial buildup and shedding. Reproduction is quite uniquely cruel and onerous for human women. From my childhood Bible readings, I recalled the story of the expulsion from Eden and mankind's great punishment. Adam was sentenced to toil in the earth until he returned to it. And for her part in the betrayal of the serpent, Eve's lot was to bear terrible pain and suffering in childbirth. So, did being free from God inside the dome mean that women were also freed from the horrors of childbirth? Since this was a uniquely human problem, human testing was the only way we would find out. Being young and already so invested in discovering the answer, I volunteered to be the first test subject for a godless pregnancy with the help of another one of the researchers, who was more than happy to provide the required genetic donation. Quarters were created for me, my home for the duration of the pregnancy. A private room was built inside the dome, with sufficient comforts to keep me from going crazy for the next nine months. Once it was confirmed I was pregnant, all other work stopped inside the dome. I was made the priority, with doctors constantly hovering over me, monitoring, measuring, pricking my fingers for hemoglobin counts, and making me pee into an endless array of sample jars for testing. But all of us had seriously underestimated what would happen to a pregnancy inside the dome. After 28 days, the experiment came to a shocking end. It was so abrupt and painless, I hardly registered anything was happening. 
One moment I was sitting on the end of my bed, pulling on a shirt. The next, there was warm fluid spreading under my thighs and an odd pressure in my pelvis. The fetus emerged intact, barely bloody, a perfect human in miniature. And rather than being a fatal miscarriage, as I initially assumed, the baby was whole and alive. It was just small. It was taken from me immediately. Prodded, swabbed, injected, sampled. It was an ordinary baby girl. All organs fully formed and functioning. All APGAR scores, too. But barely one quarter the size of an average newborn. She was so little I could hold her in one hand. Like a warm, pink doll. But when she latched to my breast and began to suckle, it was clear that her appetite was that of a regular-sized baby. She gained rapidly, making up for her premature birth weight within a matter of months. We named her Eve. Of course we did. What else would you call a baby girl born outside the sight of God, and therefore without original sin? Aside from the abruptness of her gestation, she grew as normally as any other child. I think many of us expected something mythical or miraculous or catastrophic that she would grow to be an adult before her 10th birthday or have some other kind of extreme abnormal physical development. But she was as ordinary as could be, given the circumstances of her upbringing within that godless environment. Before Eve was five, a second woman was brought into the dome to birth a second child, a boy, to be both a companion to Eve and a future donor of genetic material when she was old enough to bear children. It seems strange to me now to talk so clinically about it. We were all so detached, so invested in an outcome from our project that we barely considered Eve human. It was as if being hidden from the sight of God meant that the things that we did to her didn't matter, that she wasn't truly one of us. But even so, I did care for her as much as my duties allowed. She was still my daughter, even if I'd only carried her inside me for a month. Our first inkling that something was wrong came with Adam's initial stirrings of manhood. Eve had always been a wonderful child, polite, compliant, rational, and calm. Conversely, Adam was wild, unpredictable, and prone to rage. The first time he hurt her, he was disciplined into contrition, and we thought the matter done with. But he hurt her again almost immediately, without any regard for the consequences. It quickly became clear to his caregivers that he had a pathological need to harm other people, and Eve was the only target over whom he had any physical power. So the decision was made to separate them permanently. The dome was divided into two areas, Adam's, more like a prison, and Eve's, more like a home. Eve, despite her isolated upbringing, was intelligent, social, and inquisitive. She devoured whole books in single days and even read my papers on the dome's construction and the research we were doing. I thought it important that she understand what we were doing, that if she was aware, then there would be a certain amount of consent when she was deemed old enough for the second phase of the project. And I felt vindicated in that choice when the day came for her to be inseminated, for she seemed perfectly happy to comply. But then again, she was always compliant, no matter what anyone asked of her. The male researchers had wanted Adam to impregnate her naturally, but even at 16 years old, 
he was almost too violent for his handlers to keep under control. I refused to allow him anywhere near Eve because the slightest glimpse of her, even a mention of her, would send him into a berserk frenzy, harming others and himself with a determination that was disturbingly inhuman. In the end, the sperm sample was extracted via needle aspiration while Adam was sedated. Eve's pregnancy began in a laboratory, her harvested eggs fertilized under a microscope, then implanted into a womb that had never shed blood, but was healthy and functional as all her other godless organs. What would happen next, we had no idea. As the first few days of her pregnancy progressed, we collectively held our breath, concerned that the implanted zygotes would be rejected by the smooth, vascular walls of Eve's uterus. Our concerns were misplaced. Her gestation was even more successful and abrupt than mine. We hadn't even considered performing the first ultrasound, as Eve was just one week into her pregnancy when she knocked on the door of my small office inside the dome to tell me she had birthed three children and that all three displayed the same tiny size and perfect development as she had when she was born. The frenzy amongst the researchers and doctors was immediate. I was not permitted to actually see the triplets for weeks, but I was handed the reports and read through the data in the interim, just as fascinated as everyone else by these miraculous humans, gestated and born in a single week. They were sexless, these grandchildren of mine. Fused labia and a urethral outlet, the only external genitalia in evidence. No internal structures were present, no ovaries, no undescended testes, no uterus. But other than that, they were incredibly healthy and grew at a phenomenal rate. The miraculous predictions we'd initially held for Eve, that she'd be an adult before she was 10 years old, we should have saved those predictions for the second generation. Eve named the children for the three wise men who had visited Jesus in his manger, Balthazar, Caspar, and Melchior. The staff at the research facility began to refer to them as the triplet boys, even though they were truly neither sex. I finally met them when they were six weeks old, each the size of an average six-year-old, chattering and playing with their mother and each other. They regarded me with obvious intelligence, listening attentively to Eve as she explained that I was their grandmother. When Melchior asked for his grandfather, I explained that a fellow researcher had donated genetic material, just as had been done with their father for their own creation. Can we see our father? I kept my tone matter-of-fact, but told the truth. Perhaps when you're older, your father has behavioral issues that we were never able to fully address. I didn't see any point in lying to the child. After all, the information wasn't presented negatively, and we still maintained our efforts to try and deprogram Adam of his psychotic rage and eventually allow him to interact with other people. I look forward to meeting him. Melchior then returned back to the board game he was playing with his brothers. Three months later, the boys had matured into what we considered adulthood. Their development had essentially followed the pattern for eunuch boys, gleaned from accounts of the castrati singers from previous centuries. Deprived of indigenous sex hormones, the triplets grew tall, long-boned, fine-featured, and oddly androgynous. There had been talk of experimenting on them with sex hormones to alter their physiology more male or more female, but these ideas were discarded. These children would be the control group to compare to their future siblings. There would be time enough for such experiments. 
Eve was already pregnant with the next batch of zygotes, unfrozen and implanted, now that we knew the children were able to grow to maturity without any known complications. There were some other curious anomalies with the triplets that we could not explain. Their lungs were almost 30% larger than regular male human lungs, and their blood needed far less oxygenation. Red cells were present, but their blood was dominated by plasma and platelets, rendering it an odd red-gold color. Consequently, they were hyperimmune, and when the facility came down with the winter flu, they were completely unaffected. Pathogens virtually dissolved on contact with their tissues. They were also very strong. Their long bones and wide pelvises gave them a stability and leverage that would perhaps have been frightening if we weren't scientists. It was most easily explained by regular physics. We were planning some treadmill experiments as we suspected they probably also process lactic acid at an accelerated rate. But we didn't get the chance to start that program. When they were just six months old, the triplets rebelled. In hindsight, I shouldn't have given Eve unfettered access to the experiment data because that meant she knew as much as any of the researchers. And being a calm, rational, and patient teacher, she had imparted this knowledge virtually verbatim to her three sexless children, who were ferociously intelligent information sponges. The morning of their rebellion, the alarms on Adam's cell blared briefly, then turned off. We assumed it was an error, as Adam often had episodes, and nervous guards would fairly regularly trip the alarm in panic. Twenty minutes after that, I received an urgent call from a breathless junior researcher, babbling about the retribution of God and his angels, the last words stretched into a prolonged scream. Shortly after that, the line went dead. Several panicked calls later, we organized for an armed emergency security crew to assemble near the research facility. They entered the hangar first, and with extreme caution. Inside was bedlam. Everything that could be smashed or broken had been, including the staff who had been on duty. They lay in the shattered glass of the consoles, on top of the torn cabling, their smashed bones and ruptured organs spread about them in macabre parody of what had been done to the machines. The dome itself had been completely sealed, the bodies of Adam's captors dumped outside in a discarded heap of mangled flesh, the sole survivor screaming and shaking in the middle of the mess, not from his wounds, but from sudden spiritual decompression, his soul being burned by the abrupt return of God to his system. At first, I thought perhaps Adam had intended to use the staff as hostages to bargain for his release. But when we ascertained that the dome had been disconnected from everything, including air and water, that made me believe otherwise. That seemed the action of someone irrational. Without air, everyone inside the sealed dome would be dead within a few hours. But of course, they never intended to be in there that long. The heat on the ceramic surface of the dome manifested first as a ruddy glow, then grew more palpable as the air inside the hangar started to heat up. A few of the researchers had followed the security team once it was clear there was no immediate danger. And as we shucked off coats and sweaters, the hexagonal tiles started to turn yellow, then white gold, with the rapidly rising temperature inside. When the dome shuddered like a living thing, I began to realize what was happening. The dome, although that's what it appeared to be, was less a dome, more an egg. The whole structure was an oblate sphere, half of it buried, containing generators, cooling tanks, and other equipment needed to maintain the structure. 
It had to be a sphere. G-particles came from everywhere, so had to be blocked from every direction. As the dome began to shake, it also began to sink. The others thought it was going to collapse, but I knew better. It wasn't destroying itself. It was sinking into the Earth. And I was soon proved correct. Within minutes, it was gone. Only a gaping crater full of rubble to mark its descent into hell. With the experiment so abruptly shut down, few of the survivors really knew what happened. But while everyone was gaping at the crater where the dome had been, I availed myself of the security footage still resident on the undamaged servers. It was poor quality, as storage space was still at a premium in the early 2000s, but it was good enough to show me the start of the sequence of events inside the dome on that fateful morning. Their rampage began with the disposal of the guards assigned to Adam's cell. The triplets picked the men up with their long arms and casually dashed their brains out on the walls, barely testing their inhuman strength. When they freed Adam and took him to Eve, there was no violence. The children's parents embraced briefly, then began talking to their offspring. From there, the cameras began to blank, one by one, as the triplets methodically tore the whole facility to pieces and murdered the staff who had been on duty. I couldn't bring myself to watch all the footage of what my demonic grandchildren did to my colleagues. Demonic is exactly the right word, I believe. When we blocked that dome from the sight of God, when we created beings with souls untouched by Him, we didn't just recreate what could have happened in Eden if the serpent hadn't been present. Instead, I believe we created a scenario that was much worse. The totality of God's plan had been revealed, and the serpent took full advantage of that. You see, the big problem with Lucifer's fall was that he took only a third of the angels with him when he fell. Even a brilliant strategist couldn't win with those odds, and so he lost, banished to his pit of fire. But if he'd had the means to create a soldier every seven days, a soldier who could rip a grown man to pieces at just six months old, well, then he'd have a good chance of winning, especially if he also had the technology to hide his gathering advantage from the sight of God. When I finally thought to look into exactly who was funding our ill-fated research, I found it wasn't some megachurch-styled operation after all. After chasing paper trails until I was nearly crazed from the labyrinth of money laundering, the only origin I could find for the cash seed that had started all this was an abandoned master blacksmith's forge and a name, Wayland. Whoever or whatever Wayland might be, I'm confident now that they were in the employ of the enemy, and that with every week that has passed since that dome sank into the bowels of the earth, Lucifer's army grows another fallen stronger. And there isn't a damn thing that God can do about it. He doesn't have a clue there's anything wrong.
Caring for someone in a coma can be a heartbreaking task. Unsure if they'll wake up, but not wanting to give up on the chance that they might. If a loved one was in that situation, it makes sense that you'd grab any opportunity presented to you that might help. In this tale, shared with us by author Chris DeLeo, we meet a revivalist who can offer one such opportunity. But, as he warns, his methods can't guarantee that patients will return unchanged. I join Dan Zapula, Mick Wingert, Sarah Thomas, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, and Atticus Jackson in performing this tale. So remember the old adage that things get worse before they get better. But sometimes they simply get worse, particularly if the cure involves the devil virus. Two men from the ambulance service helped me position the hospital bed and tucked my brother into a semblance of comfort. The white sheet creased across his neck. Really amazing of you to do this. The man gave me a sympathetic smile as he hooked the urine bag onto the bed. He's family. A few hours later, headlights blinked through the trees shielding my front yard. I apologize. The newcomer stepped from his vehicle in the circular driveway. His workman's jacket puffed around his chest. He had to try twice to get the trunk to squeak shut. Rust flecked off the bumper. I was tempted to glance into the canvas bag he handed me, but I resisted. The weight felt substantial, maybe 15 pounds. The man carried a large leather-bound book. How long will it take? I tugged the red rubber band that was around my wrist and snapped it against my skin. The man stopped halfway up the front steps. The porch light silhouetted him. Depends. Inside, I asked if we could start. No, no. There's things to discuss first. He set the big book on the counter and slung his coat on a kitchen chair. He wore a yellow dress shirt with a skinny brown tie that dangled well short of his waist. I handed him the canvas bag. We both held the bag's straps. You're sure this is what you want to do? His hair was thin and whitish, his beard stubbly and uneven. His eyes shone dark, like polished marbles. What can I call you? Mr. Sears had referred to this man as the Revivalist. Sears told me quite the tale of how this man had killed a raven and then ushered life back into the bird. Such stories were common, especially on cold nights when we drank bourbon by the fireplace in the library of the Chowder Club. Sears, the oldest of our group at almost 60, had a way about him that made you believe his stories. You can call me Rev. Short for Reverend? <laughs> All about perspective. Okay. Rev, what do we have to do first? He took the bag. I hate to start this way, but as discussed. My finger stabbed the envelope on the counter. Money crinkled. Right here. He smiled, but left the envelope on the counter. Do you want to count it? Oh no. 
Sears vouched for you. Rev glanced around, then pointed. Nice house. Your brother's in there? He is. His condition? Same as I told you on the phone. The brain scans? You a doctor? Is anyone else home? No. My wife Ashley had gone upstate to visit her sister in Albany. Ashley had been a lawyer, and then she quit to be a social worker, which also made her the go-to girl for anyone's problems in the family. Her sister had plenty. Ashley knew Steve was going to be in our guest room. She hadn't objected at all when I told her we'd be taking care of him for the foreseeable future. You're such an amazing brother. Almost as amazing as I am a husband. Big house. Can we get started, please? We'll need a large pot of boiling water. The pot clanked when I set it on the stove, and the propane thumped into long, bluish fingers of flame. Rev stood at the counter, that large book before him. The canvas bag was at his feet, its contents still hidden. You know about viruses? What's there to know? A lot, actually. Thought you weren't a doctor. Rev laid a hand on the book's dark leather cover. What does a virus want? Want? Everything that lives wants something. His hand stroked the book. A virus wants to reproduce, to thrive. In a human, it finds a wonderfully cozy place to live. Hmm? It reproduces rapidly and we get ill. Gradually, our body identifies the virus, forms T-cells and fights back. Usually, our immune system wins. Our inner workings are astoundingly complex. If there is ever an argument for God, it is that we are so meticulously well-crafted at the biological level. How could that craftsmanship be simple chance? Take fevers, for example. You get sick and run a fever. The body is trying to burn out the disease. Your point? What happens when our bodies don't win the battle? When no medicine helps, the fever can't get hot enough without damaging the brain. The virus keeps doing its thing, populating inside you at an accelerating rate. It is doing exactly what it wants to. Its single-minded purpose. At that same time, however, it is crippling the very home it is inhabiting. If the body dies, so too does the virus. It found the perfect home and ruined it. Unless someone else gets infected. Exactly. The virus makes us cough, sneeze, snot all over the place, gives us explosive bowel movements. The virus must spread to other hosts if it wants to survive. So? Rev raised one hand. His gold wedding band sparked in the light. Think how unique that is. The virus can multiply simultaneously in endless places inside endless bodies, populating like crazy in every one of its homes, and hopefully continue to spread itself farther and wider. The virus lives on, but not the individual strains infecting individual people. It's like humans. We populate the Earth, and even as we die off, we still spread. Our offspring keep the mighty human infection spreading. I'm not paying you for a lecture. Humor me for a moment. 
He glanced at me over his shoulder. Shadows hid his eyes. Take the virus again. Suppose there is an epidemic. How do we deal with it? Immunize. Contain. Right. When the swine flu broke out in Mexico City several years ago, the government shut down the city. This caused worldwide anxiety, but in a few short months, the flu was completely under control. Some people died. Some got better. But the virus was not allowed to leave the city. Eventually, it died out. That's the only way to handle an outbreak. Quarantine and wait. Now suppose the virus were smart. Suppose the virus had some sense of what it was doing and could choose its victims, control its rate of reproduction. Imagine if it could constantly inhabit a host, but lay in wait for the most opportune moment. It could plan its attack. Not simply a living thing, but a sentient one. Something like that would be almost impossible to fight. Certainly to contain. He turned back to the book. Your brother is sick. And while I may be able to offer a sort of treatment, it comes in the form of a sickness that may be even worse. Behind me, the pot of water hissed above the flames. You said you could wake him. I've done it before. Sears said you brought a raven back to life. He'd tell you what happened next. Wings flapped so loudly, sounded like gunfire. And then the damn thing went right for dawn. Damn near poked his eyes out. You killed it a second time? We opened a window and let it free. Considering what you've told me, was that a good idea? Rev took a breath. Some life forces are impossible to contain. Whoever your brother was before his accident, that person is gone. Just like that bird. I can wake him, but he may be very different. I understand. I've only worked one other case of traumatic brain injury, and the results were not what the family was hoping. The guy tried to peck out someone's eyes? Rev's fingers traced across the book and gripped the edge of the cover. His nails were long and yellow. I just want you to be prepared, in case your brother is different. How so? I can force the virus into him, but it may kill him. That's it? If it takes to him, it will wake him. Yet it may also enhance certain aspects of his personality. Meaning? What kind of person was your brother before the accident? He's misunderstood. Right. I'd thought of Mom, of her tears, and the screams, and the threats, and the deathbed promise I'd made. Let's get on with this, please. Rev opened the book, the thick pages crinkling, and now both of his hands pushed down on opposite pages. His long fingers stretched towards the edges, his skin bunched in craggy wrinkles. I edged towards him. My shoes clicked on the Mexican tile and Rev's shoulders tensed. He was murmuring something, a whispered sibilant sound. A prayer? I peered over his shoulders, going up on my toes. The pages were yellowed and blotted with ink. Some of the text was printed in large block letters, and some was etched in tiny stretches of linked cursive. I recognized letters, but no words. 
The book slammed shut, and Rev turned so quickly I stumbled backwards and almost lost my balance. You were whispering it. Only I may speak the words. What is that book? Some sort of Bible? Sometimes. Strange things happen during the process. Strange? The power might go out. There may be bizarre noises. Sears said this was science, not occultism. It's hard to define. The water is ready. Bring the entire pot. A small lamp on a nightstand offered the only light in the bedroom. The room was small, barely large enough to accommodate the bed, nightstand, and dresser. And the shadows wedging into the corners and along the floor shrunk the room further. Rev moved quickly and with exact precision as he set the book on the bed near my brother's still-sheeted body and then removed item after item from the canvas bag. He set these items on the dresser, where Ashley had staged two three-by-five framed pictures of our nieces, my brother's children, and one eight-by-ten of Steve as a little boy on our mother's lap. I'd shaken my head. Even if he wakes up, he won't recognize his kids. You don't know that. He hasn't seen them in almost two years, and as for mom- He's your brother. Don't hate him because he isn't you. I stood in the doorway with the pot of steaming hot water. I was using pot holders with Thanksgiving turkeys on them to keep from burning my fingers. Of the items Rev set on the dresser, there were a few glass votives, a bundle of tied incense sticks, a small gray statue of something, and a heavy granite block. The other items set among those were not so easily deciphered, but I was sure of one thing. Not a cross in sight. Of course not. Rev removed a zippo from his pocket and lit the bundle of incense before turning to me. Oh yes, the water. You may place it beside the bed. What's it for? From the canvas bag, he removed a long carving blade. The blade was at least six inches, maybe eight, and it flared up at the end to a threatening point. You'll see. I have Clorox if you're looking to sanitize. Rev did not humor my comment. I set the pot on the throw rug next to the nightstand beside the bed. Go to the other side. Once I start, it'll happen quick. He'll wake up? The procedure can be a bit violent. Violent? Just a warning. I appreciated the top of the dresser as I passed. The statue was a ceramic gargoyle, and he had set it on the black granite slab. The figure had large, angel-like wings and a giant tiger-tooth-filled mouth. Its tail was curled all over taloned feet, only it had more than one tail. It had several, each piled on the other like snakes. Not snakes. Tentacles. That was silly. What gargoyle had tentacles? It was the kind of macabre knickknack you could buy off any number of websites, and was probably made in China, but something about it bothered me. Its small beady eyes were completely dark and featureless, but I felt like it was seeing me. It was a stupid, inexpensive tchotchke, but I was a little afraid of it. 
I tried to see what the other items were that he had placed on the dresser. I leaned close. It was dark and I couldn't make out what I was seeing. I leaned closer, my face an inch or so from the gargoyle. One of the gargoyle's tails, tentacles, twitched. I stumbled backwards and this time lost my balance. The floor tried to snap my lower back and pain burrowed deep right above my ass and vibrated down my legs. It's time. Did you see that? Did you see- Get up and get into position. The man's sternness took me so much by surprise that I was up and moving to the opposite side of the bed before registering how wobbly my legs were. Like they were rotted pilings that might snap at any moment. Rev stood across from me. The large book was open before him. His fingers curled around the metal rail bar that kept Steve from rolling out onto the floor. The bed had been rather expensive, especially considering it wouldn't be used for long. Steve was asleep. Drool slipped from his slack lips. Half his head had been shaved, and a deep black stitch-sewn crevice ran from his forehead up across his skull and down behind his ear. His face was a bit misshapen, cheekbones jutting, nose and jaw crooked, but he'd never been very good-looking anyway. Beneath his lids, Steve's eyes rolled a little. Just reflex. Sometimes his hands would move, his arms lift and quickly stretch, his legs twitch, and sometimes he'd yawn, big, exaggerated, full-face yawns with his teeth clacking shut and almost biting his tongue. Each time he yawned, it was as if he might open his eyes, look around, and ask what the hell had happened. I'd been warned not to misinterpret Steve's actions. The doctor had been clear about that. He might look at you, may even reach for you, but he's not really seeing you. There's no way to know what's going on in his brain. I glanced back at the gargoyle. It couldn't have moved. It must have been a trick of the shadows. My mother's youthful face smiled back from the 8x10. On her lap, my brother was frozen mid-clap. He might have been five or six, and the look in his eyes suggested he was up to something. I found meaning in that mischievous child expression, and the adult that kid became confirmed my belief. The only window was behind me, blinds closed against the night, and though the bedroom door was open and some of the kitchen lights seeped in, the room closed around us. The words, or whatever they were, sounded deep and clear. Head bowed to read the words, Rev had his hands up, open. Scarred grooves crisscrossed both palms. If it's just a virus, why all the creepy sayings? It is the way. Okay, but how is- The meaningless word thudded against the walls. The smell of incense deepened, sharp and somehow ammoniac. Rev picked up the large knife where he'd placed it beside the book. Light arced along the edge. 
Head still down, he raised his hands before him, knife in one, palm open beside it. The blade rested against Rev's open palm and slowly sliced straight across. He set the knife down gently beside the book and curled his other hand into a fist. His knuckles blanched. I remembered what Sears had said, leaning back into one of the tall leather chairs. It's all very real. Life lives in the blood. Then he sipped his bourbon, his stare locked on me. Was this an elaborate trick? Was Sears laughing with Dawn right now in the back library at the Chowder Club? Rich pricks could be such assholes. That's why you fit right in, Ashley would say. Why would this guy cut himself when he could... No, no, no. Rev slammed his injured hand into my brother's face. He did not punch my defenseless brother. The Rev's bleeding palm slapped against Steve's lips. Rev rolled his hand to massage open Steve's mouth. Drink, drink, drink. The bedroom door slammed shut. The gargoyle tipped off the dresser and thunked to the floor. Its wings fractured and ricocheted in separate directions. Wind pushed against the window, howling suddenly and very loud, and the lamplight flickered. Rev worked his hand on my brother's mouth. What the hell is happening? I tried to scream, but the words scraped along my throat, small and tinny. Drink! Drink and return to life! Thunderous pounding knocks stampeded the bedroom door. The vibrations shook along the wall. The knocks kept coming louder and faster. Another sound vibrated along the walls, animal-like, a crumbling, crackling growl that was almost language. A glass votive fell, shattered. The bundle of incense flashed into bright flaming life and thick yellowy smoke billowed free. The pictures of Steve's kids tipped over. It's life! Take it! The window exploded. Shards of glass whooshed around me. Dozens of fragments bulleted my back. A piece of glass stabbed Rev in the cheek and another sliver sliced his ear. But he didn't flinch. Wind urged into the room like a living force and still that pounding against the door went on and on. Steve shook as if being electrocuted. His arms and legs vibrated. His chest rose off the bed, his head tilted back against the pillow, and his mouth dropped fully open, wide as it could get. He slurped at Rev's hand. Rev lifted his hand and Steve's head followed, mouth suctioned to his palm. Beneath the sheet, Steve's arms dangled to the sides, a crucified victim. Steve's eyes opened. They rolled back and then fell sideways to look at me. Light flickered across them. His chest was almost five inches off the bed. 
Rev screamed. I couldn't tell if it was one of pain or rage, maybe both. The wind shrieked and that mad pounding rod rammed the door faster and faster. Steve rose higher a foot off the bed and that sound, that other animal sound, swallowed the room impossibly loud and I imagined some dinosaur-like predator, some enormous nightmare beast hulking high above us. Rev yanked his hand away and Steve thumped back onto the bed. The wind stopped. The knocking stopped. That other sound was gone too. The stillness that filled the room was thick and watery. Rev dropped away, fell to his knees beside the bed. His arm splashed into the pot of steaming water. He heaved in deep, gasping breaths. Steve's eyes were still open, and now he really was looking at me. Kyle? Steve? The light was steady. Steve glanced around. He appreciated the man on his knees beside the bed, and then turned back to me. What is this? You're back. My smile was genuine. I went around the bed to Rev. Still on his knees, triangle of glass sagging from his cheek, he slumped there, breathing deeply. Tremors shook him as if he were cold. In the water, ribbons of blood curled around his arm. You can leave now. The money is where I left it. Not yet. Yes. Now. You must not get any blood on you. You have to wait. Let your brother settle. It should be safe in a few hours. Steve watched from the bed. In the water, the blood swirled. A crimson water snake or an intestinal tapeworm. The infection lives in the blood. I am a carrier. It is not safe for the conscious living. He's back. It worked. My brother stared with a mix of fear and confusion. Rev didn't respond for several seconds, but then he looked up at me, exhausted, eyes glazed. He might have aged another five years in the last several minutes. Why did you want me to wake him? He's my brother. There's more to it. In the water, the red tendrils wrapped around the man's arm, squeezed. I don't care what you think. You did what I hired you for, and now you can leave. Brother, what is this? The wind, the knocking, that other sound. They've never been so strong. The virus really wanted him. You have to be careful. Your brother may not be ready for what's inside him now. I turned to Steve. How do you feel? What is- Keep away from the blood! Back on the other side of the bed, I was touching my brother's shoulder. Please. The compulsions can be very strong. My brother's used to compulsions. Alcohol, drugs, loose women. Isn't that right, Steve? He tried to smile. What is the last thing you remember? Steve opened his mouth and then closed it again. A razor blade of blood sliced across his teeth. When he opened his mouth again, the blood was licked away. This is your house. You lost your apartment. You were three months past due before the accident. 
you'd quit your job. I'm not sweeping floors. I'm better than... accident. You were hit by a car. Steve's face stretched almost flat in his confusion. Car? You almost died. He looked around. Ashley? I smiled. She's at her sister's. She'll be back. I, I feel okay. Can I get up? No, you're not okay. What? You were in a coma. I needed to bring you out. That man, I pointed, infected you with a virus. You will continue to feel better and better as the virus gestates in its newest home. Rev turned to me. He may seem like his old self, but in a few days he may be very different. The virus was eager. You must be cautious. I want to get up. I pushed his shoulder back down. I need to ask you something. I love you, brother. Every time Steve called me brother, my jaw would tighten. I'm sure you do, but there's something I need to know. The good Rev here wants to know too. Rev? I'm not a priest. Not in the traditional sense, right Rev? He did not respond. Now pay attention, Steve. I took his face in both hands. The last thing you remember, you were at that strip club and then you were walking along the road. Where were you headed? He started to respond and stopped. Recognition floated up into his face, filled his eyes. Ashley. You sent her a text. She offered to pick you up. Kyle, I... How long, Steve? How long were you fucking my wife? Rev stood. Water sloshed onto the floor. Do not antagonize him. This does not concern you. I squeezed Steve's face. Tell me. I just want to hear it from your mouth. Please. Tell me. I know it's true. It just... It just happened. <laughs> She's always had a soft spot for deadbeats. I, tr I tried to stop it. She, she said you wouldn't have children. She I punched him in the face. Steve rolled away from me and knocked into the metal rail. The sheet twisted around him. Stop! Last chance to get out of here, Rev. From beneath Steve's pillow, I tugged free a thick, clear plastic bag. The red rubber band waited on my wrist. What are you doing? Either leave now or this is going to end very badly for you. You can't. My smile pushed my cheeks against my ears. It wasn't me, officer. Oh, no, it was the man I hired to help my brother. Maybe I was naive or even stupid, but I would do anything to help my brother. The man asked to be alone with him, but then I heard something, and when I burst back into the room, he had this plastic bag wrapped around my brother's head. I stopped him, but it was too late. That's not the truth. Who are they going to believe? I'm an upstanding member of society. I drive a new BMW. I live in a gorgeous house. I belong to an elite club. You're a poor con artist who claims he can raise the dead. Steve stared at the plastic bag, confused. Blood smeared his lips. What are you doing? You know... It's not the affair. 
Obviously, that's some of the reason, but I'll take that up with Ashley. No. What I do now, I do for Mom. It took Steve a moment to understand. Fear slowly sank down through his warped face. It, it wasn't my fault. I chuckled. The bag felt slick in my hands. You broke her heart so many times. Over and over. You promised to be a good man and you stole from her and you did drugs and you disgraced our family. You were raised better. You drove her into depression and when she was dying in that hospital bed, where the hell were you? You don't know what you're- You had the same opportunities I had, but you shit on all you were given. I became a success. I worked my way for everything I have. What's your excuse this time? Anger burned hot through his face, but it broke almost immediately and he started to cry. Please, brother. We're blood. I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's not my- I was there when she died. I opened the bag, readied the band. I was there when she asked for you, and I had to tell her you weren't coming. I was there when you broke her heart for the last time, and she gave up. You deserve so much worse than this. Stop! I grinned at him. Rage seized my every muscle. That was okay. I was very good at controlling my anger, harnessing it when needed. The bag slipped over my brother's head dropped over his eyes, and then Steve lunged at me, arms out, hands hooked into claws, but the sheet pulled against him. He slapped at my face, pawed at my arms. The sheet kept his hands from gripping. Rev reached across the bed. I yanked Steve toward me, and Rev's hands fell onto Steve's chest in a thudding punch. Blood coughed free from Steve's mouth as I yanked the bag down and bunched it around his throat. The rubber band stuck on the side of his head, and I thought it might snap, but then it was down over his face and pulling tight around his throat. He glared back from inside the plastic bag, furious and horrified. Breathe, breathe deep, brother. The bag sucked into his open mouth, then out, then in. The plastic caved toward his throat. He chomped on it, sawed his teeth back and forth. His arms bounced off my back, the sheet jacketing him. The bag crinkled tighter and tighter around Steve's head. I kept my hands gripped around his neck, but I did not squeeze. The rubber band seal was enough. My brother's oxygen level was rapidly dropping, which was slowing his heart, and in a few moments, blood circulation would completely stop. I'd done my research. I won't let you do- I stared at Rev, and he backed up. The knife was still on the bed, within easy reach. The blood, it's on you. Run away, Rev. The virus chooses its host. It wanted you. Run, run, run. Rev moved fast toward the bed, but he wasn't going after the knife. He snatched up the big leather book and ran from the room, 
Pink water dribbled off his arm across the floor. In a few seconds, I heard Rev's car struggling to turn over. Be a real shame if it doesn't start. My brother, however, did not respond. His eyes had glossed over, his mouth fixed open wide, body still. Dead ahead, our mother's smile gleamed brightly. I let go of him and picked up the knife. In the wide blade, I found my face. Two worms of blood trailed from my nose, only it wasn't my blood. My nostrils itched, feeling wet as if I were slowly submerging myself in water. Welcome. The dual bloodlines slithered upward and out of sight. Nog Inga. Outside, the engine whined and cranked and stuttered. My steps clacked softly. He didn't see me coming. Ashley answered her phone on the first ring. Is everything okay? Steve died. Oh, God. Oh, Kyle. I'm heading back home right now. My wife can be very considerate that way. She's always had a thing for guys in need. Always sympathizing with the victims of the world. She wouldn't want me going through this alone. She needn't worry. Something new lives inside me. I'll never be alone again. I hope she gets home soon. In our final tale, we meet a research psychologist who specializes in memory recovery. Instead of pursuing one of the more obvious routes to advance his research, he decides to interview alleged alien abductees. After all, who doesn't want to believe? But in this tale, shared with us by author Jared Roberts, we find out that sometimes there are darker mysteries behind alien abductions than little gray men. I join Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, and Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So plan out your interview and get ready to take a trip into the subconscious, but be careful about getting answers you're not prepared for when you come up with questions for an abductee. The thread uniting all genuine abduction experiences is memory. Every abductee has to recall the experience slowly, piecemeal. Often they start not remembering anything happened at all. Then the memory is fuzzy, with bits clarifying over time or through comparison with later experiences. The rest is filled in by reason, guesswork, or imagination. I find that the accounts that ring truest are those that admit their memories are imperfect. That suggests to me two things. 
First, that there is some real experience behind the memories. Second, that we can do psychological work to recover it. What we recover may or may not resemble what you initially believed happened to you. My audience was Jonas Plath, a kind, lighthearted man. He'd had a cold beer and several wisecracks waiting for me when I arrived. I took an instant liking to him and to his sole companion, Pedro. Pedro was a stout Labrador mix who also enjoyed a good beer. I was a researcher at Stanford then. I was considered promising. <laughs> Imagine that. When I told the chair I was interested in the psychology of alien abductees, he advised I was pissing my career away. Those people are just after tabloid dollars to buy their PBR. That's one hypothesis. I believed, and still do believe, the phenomenon has not been given proper psychological scrutiny. What is the real reason intelligent, otherwise normal people believe they've been personally visited by extraterrestrials? Or what's more interesting to me is, why do they forget so much? I gathered together many accounts, honed in on those that struck me as genuine, and conducted phone interviews. From the pool of those interested and that appeared sincere, I narrowed down to just Jonas. The department refused to fund my travel, so I paid my own way to the middle of nowhere Oklahoma to meet Jonas in person. Jonas had listened to my spiel attentively, nodding at the right spots. He seemed excited to get started. He even got us each, including Pedro, a fresh beer. He had only one question. You ain't gonna hypnotize me now, are you? No, sir. I just ask questions. Okay, good, because seems to me everyone's Marie Antoinette in a past life, and I just assume not know. The theoretical side of my work, and why I was considered promising, was my research into restoring fractured memories. The first stage of the process involves getting an account of the event, or the most significant from a series of events, as the patient best remembers it. Next, I ask questions to clarify vague points or to show where future clarification is needed. Just drawing attention to the vagueness begins the process of healing. Then we repeat, again and again, until a picture without vagueness remains. I'd always thought of it like carefully tuning a radio to get the best signal. Sitting out on Jonas's front porch, he sat back and gave me his full recollection of the event that would be our starting point. Well, it's just as you said. First, I didn't remember nothing. I woke up one morning feeling sore and stiff, tender even. I didn't do much working or drinking the day before, but I wasn't too worried about it. And then I start to notice things that don't make much sense. A big bruise on my neck. I'd slept 36 hours. Uh, that was a first. Folks saying I called them or they saw me when I know I was sleeping. So... I get to going over what happened in my head. I keep thinking about it, and I don't let up. I couldn't even focus on TV anymore on account I'm always thinking about what happened. And here's how come I remember it. I got home from a night out. My girlfriend then, Jenny Holland, she didn't live with me yet at that time. So I'm home alone. I didn't have nothing to drink all night. I remember that because I had a dinger of a hangover that morning and wasn't ready for another. Now I put together a sandwich and watched some TV. I was tired, but I tried to stay up anyway. 
After a while, I turn the TV off and it's dark. I get a knife out of the kitchen and walk fast to my room. Fast, like something's trying to grab me. You ever get that feeling? I hopped into bed and covered up tight. I'd never been jumpy like that in my life. I didn't know what got into me. I'm not sure if I fell asleep and woke up or just never slept, but sometime later I'm feeling that, that feeling that someone's in the house. I go back downstairs to take a look, and I see all the curtains pulled open. The front door isn't all the way shut. What the hell? Now, I know I didn't leave the house like that. I go to the door to close it. I know there's something looking at me from the window. Well, I turn to look away, and I see something looking at me from the windows. Someone in a mask, I think. Well, I shout now. that I got a gun, and he better get. And the door flies open, and something comes running into the house, screaming. It runs right at me. I never heard screams like that. I try to run, but I'm paralyzed. I don't know why that is. I just can't move. Well, I must have passed out because next thing you know, I'm on a cold metal table. They got me strapped. Strange machines all around. Uh, here, I guess you'd say it's talking, but it's like no language I ever heard. It's grunting and groaning. I think I hear a kid and I ask, who's that? Who's there? And I still can't move. And I see some machine is attached to me. And I think it's putting something into my neck. It hurts. And then that's it until I woke up two days later. Jonas must have told his story many times since recalling it, but he was visibly shaking all the same. Pedro, sensing the man's unease, rubbed against him and calmed him. There was no doubt in my mind that Jonas believed everything he told me had happened, just as he had said it. That didn't mean he was right in his beliefs, of course. Once he was ready, and we each had another Lone Star in hand, we began the questioning. Let's start with an easy one. What were you watching on TV? Oh, I see what you're getting at. Like, was I watching some flying saucer crap on the History Channel? No, sir. The guide said it was Bloodsport. You ever see Bloodsport? Hell of a movie. But I don't think that's what it was. Now that I think about it, yeah, now, now that I think about it, you know, I tried to change the channel, but it was the same thing on every channel. <laughs> it's not likely that was Bloodsport. What was it? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. But you wanted to watch it? No, I did not. I just wanted to stay up all night. Like at a sleepover when you're a kid. 
no matter what you're doing, as long as it's not sleep. But I was getting tired. Why did you want to stay up? Well, well, I reckon I was scared. Yeah. And when I turned off the TV and it was dark, I remember feeling scared. That's why I wanted to stay up. I was scared to go to my own bed. I felt pretty stupid about it too, being scared in my own house. I ought to feel stupid about that, right? I mean, I'd work myself up, thinking things like, maybe someone's in one of the rooms, or maybe someone's right beside me now that it's dark. Stupid thoughts. What happened to the knife? I left it on my nightstand. No, wait. I took it with me when I went downstairs because, because I was scared. You know, I must have dropped it when they took me. I don't remember. Why was your front door unlocked? Oh, it wasn't. I always lock up. My parents never did. My folks out here don't. I could drive down 10 miles to Ed Richter's place and walk in there right now and get a drink out of his fridge. Me, I always lock up, though. Maybe I've been scared in my own home for a while. How could it be opened? Well, there's only one key. You could pry it open, I guess, but nobody did. There wasn't any damage. I, I don't know. Or, or there's lockpicking, like on TV, or, or I guess I... I would have had to do it. Why did you feel someone was in the house? Well, they told me. Who told you? I think it was a dream. Someone said to me, we're inside. Who said that? I don't remember. Well, did it sound male or female? Older? Younger? Michael. If I had to say it sounds like someone, sounded like Michael Fletcher. Who's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael Fletcher. It, Michael was this kid we used to pick on in school. He used to say he has uh, asthma. <laughs> and we'd get on him about it. His asthma. <laughs> he died from it, the asthma, uh, when he was a kid. Jesus God, it did sound like him. I... Maybe it was a dream then, because Michael ain't talked in 20-something years. What happened to Jenny Holland? Well, nothing, really. She moved in for a bit, and then she didn't want nothing to do with me after I told her what happened. It wasn't her fault. I changed for a while. Couldn't think of anything but what was done to me. I didn't want to be touched. She said I screamed at night. <sighs> Who wants to live with that? He got up and signaled that was enough. And it was enough for the first day. I drove an hour away to the nearest motel. The drive gave me a chance to settle down. He'd offered me a room, but I preferred some distance. I spent the night thinking about his story and answers. The method was working. We were getting somewhere. It was exciting. He'd soon be free to face the truth and that's the beginning of a long road in itself. The next day we sat in Jonas's den for another session. 
The furniture hadn't been updated since at least the 80s. The most remarkable item was the wood frame luxury RCA television set with the most eccentric labyrinth of rabbit ears I'd ever seen. I pointed at it wordlessly. He said that's what it took to get a signal down here. Paul said it was something in the soil composition, magnetism or some such, messes up signals. I explained to him that all he had to do was tell me the story again, as fully as he now remembers it. With our equipment ready, beer that is, we began in earnest. Yeah, but won't that be kind of boring? This is the key. We balk at repeating the exact same story again. Our mind strives to find additional details for our own sake as well as our audience. Combined with the questioning on the last session, I expected new information. I can live with boring. Give me all the boring details. If I wanted Star Wars, I'd go to the movies. All right. Well, Jenny drove me home from the roadhouse after a night out, and we had fun. Normally, I would have drove myself, but my truck wouldn't start that day. Funny things like that were happening. Things not working or getting misplaced. I asked her to come in. The house was dark, and I don't want to be alone. <laughs> she had to work early the next morning, so she can't. I cook myself up a grilled cheese and turn on the TV. Oh, what the hell? Here's another one of those things. Something's wrong with the TV. It ain't been picking up channels right for a while. No matter how I moved the antenna. I wasn't getting reception at all, so I turned it off. Sat there and finished my grilled cheese until I got tired. I had that feeling of being spooked that night. Ain't no sense in it for a man to be spooked in his own home. Well, I checked all the doors and windows to make sure they was locked. Got a knife from the kitchen, then I ran to bed. I even jumped a weak step because it's got a creak to it. I couldn't sleep. I lay there listening. I don't think I ever did sleep. I feel crazy for doing it. I just can't stop. Whenever I stop listening, I hear something. Like it knows when I forget to listen. It's something in the room with me. If I'm still enough and pretend I don't know, I'll be okay. Well, that must have been when I fell asleep. Because that's when I hear poor Michael Fletcher saying to me, We're inside now. I jump awake, reach for the knife. It's gone. I don't remember where I put it. I get downstairs, and the door's open. And the windows, too. Something comes through the door. It's screaming. And it asks, where's your kid? And it keeps screaming and coming at me. And I, I can't move at all. And... 
Jonas stopped suddenly. He grabbed hold of Pedro, who'd leapt up beside him on the couch. I hadn't seen Pedro all morning until then. He tried to apologize, but I, I told him to forget it. I was glad for the interruption. I'd expected the fantastical elements to fade with new details, but they've gotten worse, and Jonas's reaction to them was more intense. I felt shaken myself by empathy alone, because he believed it. Something certainly had happened to him. We went hiking back through his property after a lunch of grilled cheese and jerky. Pedro led the way, sniffing trails through the tall grass. This process is kind of a doozy. Whatever happened to you was a doozy. This process is just making it clear. The wind blew gently through the long grass. Birds chirped lazily, ignorant of problems like psychological trauma and repression. I'd never inhaled air so clean, rich with earth scents. We'd been walking several minutes without a word. It's peaceful here. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather got this land after the war, but the first one. The way he tells it, they all said he was crazy to build here. Even the Indians didn't do nothing with it. Never did say why. They built his home here anyway. And we ain't saw fit to leave it yet. Pedro had taken us full circle. We were back at the house. We relaxed on the front porch with, you guessed it, more beer. As soon as the cans were popped, Pedro's tail was wagging. I patted him and felt a kind of euphoria. This was one of those charged moments where nothing special's happening, but you know you'll always remember it. A perfect moment. One of those moments you'd like to recreate every day if you could. Now I'm gonna ask you a question. What is it you're looking for, really? Because I got the notion you don't believe in aliens at all. Well, I believe in them, but you're right. It's not really why I'm here. I want to understand what it means to remember something, Jonas. This moment here, I'll cherish this memory for the rest of my life. And I mean that. But even if I could recreate the physical events exactly, it'll never be the same. Can't be done. The memory stands alone. I stopped for a moment to take a sip and gather my thoughts. Pedro seemed to be paying more attention than Jonas, who was watching squirrels scratching up an oak. I didn't doubt he was listening, though. I have a handful of those moments in my life. They come to my mind often, unbidden. They give me strange feelings, a mixture of thrill and loss, feelings of closeness to those I care about, and yet distance, because these memories and feelings can't be shared. Not really. I've tried to talk about them, and their eyes just glaze over. Hmm. We sat in silence for a while after that. I thought I was done. I'd made my statement on the profundity of memories in my life. Jonah seemed to know I wasn't done before I did. He just waited, and I found myself going on. I have one memory like that, where my family left me with some strangers, just a random couple and their kids, for one day only. But the place was totally unfamiliar. Pleasant, though. I remember bits and pieces, and I feel absolutely that it was real. But our reality is constructed of memory. If I remember seeing unicorns, then unicorns are real to me. If it turns out they're not real, then 
What does that mean for my memory? That it's not real. Well, no one in my family remembers this happening, except me. These memories have that emotional charge that is, I think, part of the realest memories. The ones that define me. What else do we have to go on? So, I've dedicated my career to understanding memory. And aliens? Abductees. I feel some kind of kinship because I see them in the same struggle. Here's this memory that's unclear. Everyone says it didn't happen, yet something happened and that something was of the highest importance. Did it happen? If not, where did those memories come from? <sighs> I didn't express it as well as I'd hoped. I wanted to keep digging with words until I found the right one to make it clear. But Jonas nodded, took a drink, and said, Yep. <laughs> I laughed a little in embarrassment, mostly with genuine amusement. What else was there to be said? Yep. The sounds of traffic were just about non-existent out there. The wind was warm against my skin. The day was passing fast. Can't say I put much think into it. I guess I just want to be believed. I want to say for sure I ain't a liar. Believing myself seems like a damn good start. Sometimes I don't. He stood up and stretched. And if I can't believe these here events as I recollect them, who says anything I recollect is worth a shit? Yep. Can't say as I want these ones to be real. It's like him fellas. You see them on the news. They find an old grenade buried somewhere or other, and they don't know if it's still got a charge or not, but they stick it up on the mantle for everyone who comes by to admire. What I mean is if it's real, they don't know what they're dealing with. Let's get back to the questions. Why were you nervous about being at home alone? I don't know. Just a feeling in the house. Even just looking at it. What was wrong with the house? Something different about it. Like, you know how in the movies where they have twins, and one of the twins is good and one is bad, right? And there's always that scene where the bad twin pretends to be the good twin. But, you know, something just doesn't feel right. It's like that. It looks just like my house. It isn't, though. The inside of it's different. I can feel it. How long were you feeling that? I don't know. I used to feel that way a long time ago. When I was a kid, I tell my folks the house switched again. I could always tell the house was switching by how it all got fuzzy. But they didn't pay me any mind. So there's always been something wrong with the house? Not like this. This was different. What was different about it? Them. Who's them? I, I don't know. I don't know why I said that. <sighs> you said before you watched TV all night. This time you said the TV was off. 
How could you watch it if the TV was off? I just looked at it. I didn't like what was on, so I turned it off. But you had no reception. It wasn't TV on the TV. I was watching the house. My house was on TV. Look, I swear it. And there were people outside walking around. And I could see them on the TV. They wanted to get inside. Who are they? I don't know. Where'd they come from? They weren't there when you arrived with Jenny. They were there. Couldn't see them then, because they were switched. That's how it's always been. You see things different when it goes fuzzy. You should stay. I was packing up my notes, getting ready to leave. Well, I have lots of room here, and we'll keep working at it. He looked embarrassed to be asking. No, embarrassed because there was desperation in his voice. He didn't want to be alone, no offense to Pedro. The truth is, I didn't really want to leave. This research was feeling less like work and more just like chilling with an old friend. And I also had an irrational anxiety about what might happen if I left him alone. Like, if I left, he might not be there when I got back. So, on the condition that he was certain it was no inconvenience, I agreed to stay. I'll set up in the spare. I strolled up the stairs and directly to the room that was kept for guests. Jonas walked in behind me. His breathing had changed. It was heavy, restrained. How'd you know which room was the spare? The wind was picking up outside. It whistled through the old house. Huh. I don't know. You... It was like you... I know. He put his hands on his hips and walked to the window, ducking his head because the ceiling slanted. This question in process. You ever try it on yourself? I shook my head. He wasn't looking at me, but he seemed to know my answer. Why's that? You say you got memories like me. I... I couldn't do it to myself. The questioning is meant to jar the memory free from its own defenses. Those same defenses would keep me from asking the right questions. Someone else has to do the questioning. Well, I could do it. It don't seem too hard. I thought about it for a moment. Freud always thought psychoanalysts should be analyzed themselves. And if my method was good, if it worked, I might know the truth. Better get us each a beer then. Okay, I told you most of what I remember already. My family must have been going somewhere to some event where they couldn't or didn't want to take me. They arranged for me to stay with someone, you know, as you do. I remember it was a nice couple with their two kids. I was scared at first because I didn't know where I was or what was going on. The mom said I'd be okay and made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for us and actually cut off the crusts. We sat around and talked. 
maybe something happened because I think they wanted to contact my parents. Then I went out to play with the other kids. It was a nice farmhouse kind of deal, you know, like this place, maybe a little smaller. I remember there being huge mushrooms around the yard and I kicked them into... I was having a hard time concentrating on what I was saying. Not because of the memory lapse, but because I started to look at the jumble of rabbit ears connected to the TV set. The longer I looked, the more I became convinced it was a single antenna twisted indefinitely over generations. I tried to follow the metal thread with my eye. Eventually, I, I went home, I guess. I, uh, I had no idea who those people were. Yeah, and I don't remember seeing them ever again, and... The antenna coiled, twisted, formed knots and ties, a double Windsor, a loop, a circle, bisected, and it seemed to go on without end. I began to feel disoriented and dizzy. And... Jonas tapped me on the shoulder. And my parents didn't remember it at all. You alright? I noticed the television was on, tuned to a football game. Jonas and Pedro had been watching it. Weren't you listening? When did you turn on the TV? You was out for a few hours. You must have needed it, is what my folks would have said. He didn't even have time to ask questions, he said. I'd fallen asleep right after telling my story, and he couldn't wake me. Four hours had passed. After we had a light dinner, we got back to work, beer, and questions. They say you didn't know where you were. How was that? Your folks bring you, didn't they? Not that I recall. I used to sleep a lot when I was a kid. Kind of like what happened today. I assume I just woke up there. You remember waking? No, I, I just remember being there in one of the rooms. They got me, sat me down, and made some sandwiches with the crusts off. You know what she did with the crusts? What? Well, you're supposed to answer, right? I, I think she put them in a bucket. She'd bring them out to the pigs. We only had two pigs, more pets than anything, because she wouldn't let my dad kill them. I didn't live anywhere near here. Why did you come here? Really? I told you. I didn't even reach out to you. You responded to the posts. That spare room was a room we found the boy in. I forgot all about it. That was a fuzzy day. We didn't know where he come from. He was just there and crying. Ma tried to find out how to call his folks, but he didn't know. He was too young. He stayed with us most of the day. Ma called the sheriff out. By the time he got out here, well, you, you'd gone. Was out playing and you went off kicking mushrooms and then you must have switched. That doesn't make any sense. I was just with some friends of the family, I'm sure. Nobody remembered him but me after. 
We threw crab apples at some old bottles in the field. Cans. Rusty cans. Yeah, over yonder, where Pedro was sniffing this morning. I'd set bottles to test him. I remembered the cans. I didn't know whether to trust my method anymore. If this process was fabricating memories from a strange folia de, If I could trust my method, if these memories were real, then it was reality I couldn't trust. We couldn't sleep that night. After the overall strangeness washed away like froth, we were left with this hoppy exhilaration. We'd uncovered something nobody else knew but us. We'd connected after all these years and felt confirmed in something. We didn't even know what something was. What happened to your family? All the folks passed away. Ma got sick. Pa died of grief. And Eddie, my sister, they went off to the city. So it's just me and old Pedro left. I'm sorry. We drained our Lone Stars in sync. You look at the stars much, Jonas? Less and less. <laughs> exactly how I feel. When I was a kid, I'd look up at those things and wonder. Hours sometimes, lying back in the grass and looking up. Now I almost never look up. I'm almost surprised to see they're still up there. Jonas laughed so hard he had to put his beer down. <laughs> oh, you find some wacky tobacco in your beer or something? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. Just, you know, that feeling of being small in an immense universe. That feeling shuts off when you have to worry about paying your mortgage and Netflix and fill out your taxes. I saw he was looking up too. He hadn't picked up his beer again. One more time. The house was fuzzy when Jenny brought me home. I know you know what that means now, so I ain't got to dance around it. I always get scared when the house is that way. I've seen strange things before when the house is fuzzy. People I didn't know just walking onto and off the property, heads and tails of them seen again. I saw other things. Animals you won't find in any book. Lights and other things. It, you, those years ago. Things that just shouldn't be. I was scared. So I tried to get Jenny to come in for the night. She was scared too. I don't know if she sensed nothing. I think she heard it in my voice. Can always tell when a man's desperate. When I get in, I can tell the house was switching. Wasn't the same house. I got onto the couch, like if my feet ain't touching the ground, I'm safer somehow. I turn on the TV, thinking I'll stay up all night like I used to when the house was switching. It's all fuzzy, but it's showing the outside of the house. Not this house. This house has no cameras. The switched house. I see people walking through the grass, going around the house, making schemes to get inside. I turned the TV off and I waited. That's what I was doing. I, I was just waiting. 
but I don't know if there's a soul out there for real. That's how it is when it's fuzzy. I wait and wait, and I'm starting to fall asleep, so I figure I better get up to my room. I get a knife from the kitchen. I feel something behind me. I don't want to look. I run. I jump past that weak step into my room and into bed. I don't know how long I'm laying there waiting for some sound. A long time. I don't hear or see nothing. I just know something's in the room with me. I feel it. I look at my closet. Too dark to see much, but there's an outline. It looks like a person. I'm holding that knife pretty close until I remember my suit hangs there. And I keep looking around. Most everything looks right, except one corner is dark. Darker than the closet. And that don't make no sense. I look into that corner so long, I'm not sure I'm really seeing anything, mind. But it looks like it's moving. I'm looking into eyes. Then I hear dead Michael. I know you're awake, he says. We're inside now. And then I see it run from the corner out the door. Oh, Jesus, shit! Oh, oh! I hear it going down the stairs, then stop at the weak step. I get up to see who it was. Nothing's on the steps. Doors closed, curtains are shut, and then something comes running at me. I thought it was screaming, but it's not. That's an alarm and flashing red lights. Its face is white and waxy and with small black eyes like raisins. I don't think it's a mask. It asks me, where's your kid? Maybe he means you. I step back. I step right on that weak stair. I slide into the stairs. Not through them. I go into them like I can see the grains. I, I can't move no more. I'm stuck in the stairs. Then the lights are gone. I wake up on the table. Machines. And there are people. And these look like more normal people. Maybe a little different. And they're talking to me, but I don't understand. Something about save the signal. They said that. Save the signal. It's all signal. And they put something in my neck. Jonas, normally strong and straight-backed with his farmer's impassivity, hunched forward. He seemed on the point of collapsing. He unconsciously pet Pedro, who was panting in his face. We're close, huh?
We were both exhausted by a day of recovering lost memories, yet neither of us could sleep. The memories, newly uncovered, brought with them anxiety and a breathless wonder, so Jonas put the beer away and broke out the old medicinal wild turkey. After a few drinks, we parted to our rooms. Being in that room again, after so many years? Well, it didn't feel like anything. I still barely remembered it. It was more the idea of it that struck me. How did I get there? How does anyone get anywhere? I was marginally drunk, so my thoughts weren't that deep and I quickly passed into sleep. Two hours after midnight, Jonas woke me up with a violent shake. I almost screamed, but he shushed me. Wake up. And then I felt it. I felt the fuzziness. A static crackling invisibly and soundlessly over the substance of things. Yet it was there. I perceived it. We, we, uh, we, we switched. He nodded. I remembered more. What was going on when I was taken? It's a machine. It's called the Orchid. Those things didn't ask, where's your kid? They asked, where's the Orchid? It's a machine. It's... It's the machine that saves us. The answer just sprang to my lips. You remember too? I, I don't know. They told me to guard it. It's hiding here, in the fuzz. That's what they're here to get. They'll kill us to get it. They're here now. I grabbed Jonas's arm to still him, and I listened. I could hear rustling grass and malignant groaning from outside the house. We shouldn't have remembered. Now they know we know. How's that? Listen. I never had a dog in my life. We didn't have to exchange another word. I grabbed my bag and we practically leapt down the stairs. We were too late. The front porch was crowded with people. They wore waxen masks like Jonas described and all black jumpsuits. Jonas shrieked to run to the back door. Before he could, they grabbed him. He was calling for me to help him, but I didn't know what to do. Somewhere, I heard a soft but stern voice. Break the signal. I saw their long, pallid fingers sinking into Jonas's skull, like he was made of butter. He was shouting unintelligibly. Break the signal. Then it hit me. I snagged a chair from the porch and ran back to the den, where the monstrous antenna hovered above the television. Pedro stood growling in front of it. When he lunged at me, I hit him away with the chair. Then I slammed it as hard as I could into the antenna. The chair and the antenna both shattered, and a crack slithered down the TV's convex glass. Those things were still out there. I heard Jonas screaming. I hadn't done shit. The signal. What signal? Break the signal. I seized another of Jonas's innocent chairs and launched it at the assailant surrounding Jonas. I tackled the one with hands on him and found myself surrounded as well. One of them struck me with something, and I started to see in waves. 
Everything was made of waves, and I knew them all. I could interpret every wave and saw what it meant. I could see the signal. At first I thought I was dying, but then I knew it. I could see the signal. All reality is signal. Signals on impossible wavelengths. And here the waves had crossed. The tuner had broken. There were many signals overlapping. An alarm blasted with suddenness and firmness within Jonas's house. From the weak step in Jonas's staircase that, to all sensory organs, was made of some old hardwood, a kaleidoscope of phantasmal colors erupted. The colors organized into a single object of interconnected geometrical shapes. This object of pure light had solidity. It knocked over Jonas's coat rack as it moved through space. With another blaring alarm, a pulse emitted from the holographic entity. Following the pulse, reality was restored to its ordinary smooth reliability in a wave emanating from that one source. The fuzziness was gone. The wax-faced horde was gone. And just like that, the cosmic light show had gone with them. Just Jonas and I were left. Dawn came up on us sitting on the porch. Only one chair was left, so we sat on some cushions. We talked a little, not much. Were those aliens, he wondered? In a sense, I said. They were people from some other way the world had gone, on a different wavelength. I figured the combination of the unique landscape and soil composition with the Byzantine TV antenna as a catalyst had somehow altered the wavelength of reality here, like when a radio is between stations. It was that thing. The orchid. Maybe it was the wild turkey. I drove back to the university that day, turned in my study. Despite drawing no conclusions, it was destroyed in peer review, just as I was warned. I didn't care. Later in the year, I decided to visit Jonas again. I figured I owed him for being a mooch, so I bought a 24-pack of Lone Star. I arrived to find that the house was gone. There was no mistaking the location. I recognized the field, the trees, the tall grass. I drove back out there many times and walked over the property. Neither Jonas nor the house ever returned. I knew what that meant. We'd always been on different wavelengths. Our signals, it seems, crossed paths only briefly. Twice in my life. So far.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.